Dotnet Rocks episode 779 with guest Jay Sawyer. Recorded live Friday, May 25th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. It's Dotnet Rocks. It's me, and it's you, and it's Richard, and everybody else. What's up, man? I'm, uh, you know, the whole time shifting here. There, I am just ordered 30 pounds of ribs for the Dev Teach speaker dinner. Yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're listening to this, then yeah, you missed that dinner. Sorry. I hope it was good. But, you know, that, I, I, it's a good day when I have a large pile of pork coming to my house. Awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, I've been working on some apps for Touch, some Touch you, WPF apps. Oh, yeah? And Better Know Framework. Uh, talks to that problem. Well, let's play the theme music. Let's do it. The All weirdest effing right. theme music you've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, so if you go to wask, W-O-S-K dot codeplex.com, you'll get the flexible on-screen keyboard. Why that's what? wask, I don't know. But it's an on-screen keyboard using WPF. Because, no kidding. Because the, the one that comes with Windows... Um, Windows 7, anyway. Yeah. Meh. <laughs> Meh. You know, you know what I like when I, when I touch an on-screen keyboard? I like the button to light up so right. I know which letter I actually pressed if I pressed one. Doesn't do that. Oh, that's such a simple thing. Too. Such a simple thing. Yeah. Uh, when, you're, when you're logging into Windows on my HP TouchSmart, for example, you know, I'm typing a password. I can't see because it's a dot on the screen. So I don't really know. All I know is that a dot showed up. Hmm. And, and I have no other feedback to know. So it's it's good. So here you go. It's a WPF on-screen keyboard, and uh, you just use it. It's good. That's it. Simple. Simple. And and cool. Well, that's a great project. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, the one thing that I have been... Um, you know, I should talk about this, too. I've been... Uh, Gesture Pack uh, is now supporting 1.5 of the SDK. Ah, or will very soon. we're going to do a show on that. Yeah, we're going to do a show on that. But they have near mode, and they also have seated mode. So they can only get you from the waist up when you're seated. Mm-hmm. And if you're close by, you can be something like 40 centimeters from it, and it'll still pick up your, your hands and stuff. That's pretty close. Yeah. yeah, so it's pretty close. So, But the problem is that you have to initialize the connect in one of those modes automatically. So I've been doing this code to detect where you are, if you're sitting, if you're standing, if you're close, if you're far, and automatically switch modes. Just by, by gauging how far someone is away. Yeah. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, and it should be totally automatic. Yeah, it's not. It's not automatic. So this is the new uh, SDK from for Connect? Yep, this is 1.5. Mm-hmm. So it's not automatic, and when you do switch, sometimes you can lose tracking. So you have to also recover gracefully from the loss of skeletal tracking. And I wrote a blog post about that, and uh, I will also write, if I haven't already, put my code on my blog at carlfranklin.net or intellectualhedonism.com. So there you go. Good double awesome. double whammy today. Yeah, no kidding. Two for one or Yeah. Who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 748. Now, that was the one we did, speaking of Connect, with Tim Huckabee talking about Connect for Windows a while back. Yep. And this comment's from Jay Friedman, who says, Dagnabbit, and I love that word, by the way. Dagnabbit, guys, this show kicked ass. I have been an avid listener for a year or so now, and you've made my trips to work and home pass too quickly, often <laughs> sitting in the driveway with my wife wondering what the hell I am doing, sitting in the car, nodding my head. 
Your many shows have inspired me, but this one pushed me over the edge. We're sorry. I just ordered a connect, and I'm going to start developing for the new world of waving hands and angry people shouting at PCs. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to develop yet, but if on the way I can do something to make people less fortunate than ourselves, the expense of the connect alone will be worth it. Yeah. Awesome. And that's from Jay Freeman. I like it when we inspire. Well, and that's a, it's really just bleeding edge, this gesture stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's fun. So there you go. Who it wouldn't want to, who wouldn't want to wave at your PC? For sure. So, Jay, uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like one, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we introduce Jay Sawyer, I want to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and have a free 10-day trial, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything on the Microsoft stack, including extensive Windows 8 coverage. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Jay Sawyer. He is a developer based in Houston, Texas, who absolutely loves to write code. After spending nine years at Microsoft, he moved on to other things and is currently the lead developer for the real-time data management team at Logica US. He spends his days building really cool things, capitalized, trademark, around Stream Insight, and having a blast doing it. He's been involved with HDNUG, one of the oldest and largest .NET-focused user groups in the U.S. since its inception in 01, and has watched it grow from 5 to 10 technologists meeting around a conference table to a thriving community of over 5,000, with a regular meeting attendance averaging 100 attendees. He currently serves as the vice president. You can join him at HDNUG on the second Thursday of every month at the Houston Microsoft office. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks a lot. How you guys doing? Doing fine. Stream Insight. What is that? Um, Stream Insight is Microsoft's complex event processing platform. What it does is it allows you to take streaming events in time and run analytics on them uh, with sub-second response time. And wow. it, we're not just we're not just talking about you know a couple of things here, a couple of things there. Uh, we're talking tens to hundreds of thousands of events per second. Wow! With subsecond response time, and this it's is amazing what the thing can do. And is this a local app or is this a cloud app or how is it how is it positioned? Um, right now, Stream Insight is a part of the SQL Server platform. Um, but it's a standalone install, and it executes as a DLL. Uh, in most cases, you'll actually host it within your own executable, say, running as a Windows service. Um, they do supply a Windows service, which does the exact same thing. Um, in the install itself, you probably spend more time clicking Next than it actually takes to install the thing. You need uh, Mark uh, so Miller's install buddy, which automatically clicks the next button for installers. Yeah, you know, if you have <laughs> the installation, would take maybe about five seconds. Um, so it's a, it's a very small, very lightweight uh, set of DLLs. Um, and if you dig around on your, uh, on your SQL Server DVDs, you'll see a folder in there called Stream Insight, um, and it'll be in there, or you can download it separately because they've been releasing versions more frequently than SQL Server does. Huh. All right. So what type of data and what kind of analytics are we talking here? Uh, what type of data? It, it varies widely on, on the types of data that you'll analyze with uh, Stream Insight. Um, with a lot of the stuff that we do and a lot of the customers that we're working with right now, uh, that data revolves around sensors. So think of, you know, oil and gas being in Houston. There's a little bit of oil and gas here. Um, and yeah. in, in the oil and gas industry, you have, you know, sensors all over the rigs out in the Gulf. You have sensors on platforms on shore. Um, in what we call downstream, the refineries, you have sensors all over, all over those things. So that's one type. And in those scenarios, you'd be looking for things that might indicate that there's a problem. So anomalies um, in the data stream? That's right. Anomalies in the data stream, you know, there's, there's certain issues that go on with both refineries and drilling platforms and that kind of stuff, that they know what it looks like. Um, 
before it goes wrong, and you can actually look for those. And a lot of times those things are a complex interaction of multiple different sensor readings that you have to look at in real time. So we're not talking about explosions. And how do you define those anomalies? Um, those, those anomalies would be defined um, in different algorithms that you would do in either your link queries on the stream or using some of the extensibility points in Stream Insights, such as a user-defined operator or user-defined function. It's all .NET code. So when you're doing your queries, it's all link. The extension points are all C-sharp .NET code. So I'm wondering, what's the difference with uh, doing it myself if if I'm writing the algorithms to determine what, what uh, goes wrong, or is it a little bit higher level than having to do all the hard math yourself? Um, you would still have to do all the hard math yourself, uh, but what Stream Insight does is it provides the framework to handle the high volumes of of streams in a highly multi-threaded environment. Hmm. Um, it schedules them for you. It handles the memory management for you. It's amazingly efficient um, at at memory management, and so it provides that base platform for you to do your custom analytics while handling all of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Now, you know, I consider myself a pretty good developer. I consider myself pretty familiar with multi-threading and that kind of stuff. But I would not want to take on writing that type of multi-threaded analytic engine myself. Right. So outside of oil and gas, though, because there's, there's applicability really across a broad range of industries. Um, outside of oil and gas, utilities with smart meters, kind of yep. a no-brainer. Um, things like um, monitoring web traffic in real time. Mm. Uh, so you, there's actually uh, folks out there who have used it for doing ad targeting on websites hmm. in real time. Um, it's also been used for monitoring Silverlight webcasts and analyzing the statistics of the webcast in real time uh, to allow them, to allow Microsoft actually, to respond to uh, network traffic drops um, in a matter of an hour or two as opposed to a day or two. Wow, cool. Yeah, all right. So um, so I'm getting it. Um, it's basically handling the I.O. of all of that stuff, and then you can apply your own uh, your own math, basically, that says, what do I want to be notified of when a certain piece of this data goes above a, a particular tolerance or, or um, you know, the pressure goes up on this and down on this, and that means, you know, at a certain level that some that we have a leak or something. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and it handles the scheduling and execution of those queries. Mm. Um, it also handles synchronization of multiple input sources in time. Um, and that gets into kind of one of the key things that's really different about Stream Insight, um, is that everything occurs in time. So you can have multiple uh, event streams coming in, and they can actually be time-stamped a little bit differently due to, say, latency on the network or something like that. Um, and what Stream Insight will do is take those two streams in. You bring them in through what's called an input adapter. It'll take those two streams in, and then it synchronizes the events on those streams within a single uh, timeline. So what happens if it ar- data arrives late? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question, and it depends. So number one, uh, the concept of time in Stream Insight is bound to what we call application time. It's not okay. necessarily bound to clock time. So there's, you know, actually very valid use cases where you replay events from the past using those original timestamps, right? And that would be the application clock mm-hmm. for Stream Insight. So if stuff arrives late, Right, you've got what you call a CTI that advances that application clock. It's current time uh, current time indicator. Um, When you issue a CTI, you cannot issue an an event that goes before that CTI. You'll get an exception. 
Now, you can do a couple of things. When you're an adapter, you can say, this event came in after my last CTI. I'm going to drop it, mm. or I'm going to adjust it so that it fits in with the current CTI span. Um, you can say, you know what? I'm going to give a buffer of, say, five seconds for events to arrive in late. So whenever I issue a CTI, it's going to be five seconds past in, in the past. Okay. Um, and then in certain cases, uh, if you're doing it declaratively, you can actually have Stream Insight adjust your events to fit into your current CTI span. <clears throat> so there's a lot of flexibility in how you handle that. And yeah. they really did put a lot of thought into, okay, latency is real. Yep. How are we going to, to handle that intelligently and flexibly? Yeah, sure. No, and it's a good capture that you sort of have choices on how to figure that out. How, if it's you know, only a second behind, it's not that big a deal. But sometimes order matters with these kinds of uh, events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes order matters quite a bit. Um, and that kind of takes me into one of the next things is, you know, going back to, to time, every event in Stream Insight has time as um, one of its essential properties. It's in the, it's in the header itself. Right. And that determines how long that event is valid within the queries. Oh, interesting. Now, is that time like a, a statement of how long it's valid or when it was and when it actually arrived at the event processor? Like which what is that time? Well, that actually depends. Um, you have three what we call event shapes. Okay. Um, you, you have a point, which, as its name implies, is a single point in time. Mm hmm. You have an interval, and an interval has a known start and a known end time at the beginning of its lifetime. Okay. And then you have what's called an edge. And with an edge, you know when the edge starts. And when it starts, you know it's going to end sometime in the future, but you don't know when. Hmm. And when that sometime in the future comes, you insert the end, and that's what, that's what invalidates it. Now, does that come so, across as two different events, the sort of beginning and the end? With the edge, yes. It comes across as two different events. You have a start edge and end edge. End edge. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like that. So even if we're talking about something as, as simple, I guess, in theory, as uh, the measurement of the pressure in a pipe, mm -hmm. is that, do you consider that a point or is that a time? Um, typically, the measurement of pressure in a pipe would be received from the sensor as a point. Okay. At such and such a point in time. Yeah, at this moment, was this was the pressure. Effect, right? Then once you start taking it into your queries, you can actually play with the temporal properties. You can say, you know what? I want to extend this to be valid for the next 10 minutes. Right? Or I want to extend this to be valid until I get another reading. Right. When I get another reading, I want to clip it. Right, uh, that's actually a common pattern called two signal, where right. you alter the event's lifetime and then clip based on uh, an inbound stream when a new signal comes in. Because you don't want to be in a situation where you don't know the pressure in that pipe, right? Mm -hmm. Or the last known pressure. Yeah, so you're really working with last known pressure, right? Okay. In just what form do these in incoming streams take? Like, if you're talking about a pressure sensor, is it actually communicating via HTTP, or does any of this matter? Like, how do you collect that data? Um, the data is collected from an input adapter. And so the input adapters are something that you write in okay. .NET. Hmm. So how do you get that data? Well, depends on how that sensor is sending you data. And anything you can get to with .NET, you can bring into Stream Insight. So that really kind of opens it up pretty sure. widely, because there's not a heck of a lot that you can't get to. Um, how is Link? And then, excuse me. How is Link performing for you under that kind of pressure? Um, we we actually tested out with one customer. Um, uh, we were running, we were doing a recording from a database to see you know, exactly how much we could push through. And we got over, we were on a dual quad-core Xeon uh, with 32 gig of RAM, mm -hmm. which in this day of 
this day and age is a low to mid end server. Kind of scary sometimes, but yeah, it is. yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and we ran, we got up to a little over a hundred thousand events per second, and we maxed out at sixty one percent CPU utilization and averaged around thirty one percent. Wow! CPU wow! Okay. So um, I would say it's performing pretty darn yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, we tend towards factory examples here with that dealing with sort of relative uh, measurements and so forth. But I, I do like the, the kind of web approach. I mean, I come from the scaling world dealing with stuff where suddenly, you know, your site gets bombed. I just mm-hmm. like the idea that we'd be able to instrument that in a useful way and know, hey, you know, your site's under a ton of load right now. Yes. And do it in real time. Right. Because you, yep. you know, you have, you have the input adapters, you have your analytics, you also have output adapters. Mm-hmm. So when your analytics determine, Hey, you know what? Your website is about to keel over because all of your servers are over, you know, 70% utilization. You want to start adding some more capacity on there. Mm. Yeah. Right. You can send that to an output adapter, um, to say call a web service that then kicks off the process to, get people notified and, you know, get it, get it acknowledged and, you know, get, get things moving. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, makers of Telerik Open Access. You're just about to start another huge .NET project aiming to deliver a high-performing data access application in the shortest term possible. One way to go is wisely allocate a few weeks of dev time in the project plan to create a robust hand-coded data access layer or... There's always the easy way out. You can save yourself tons of development and testing time and focus on the business logic that your customers demand. Here's Telerik Open Access ORM, the tool that takes care of the data access layer of your app so you don't have to. Open Access ORM generates all the code you need in just a few points and clicks through a powerful visual designer and works with all popular databases and .NET platforms on the market. Download a free trial at Telerik.com slash openaccessrocks and get instant control of your data. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right. So what does the programming model look like here? uh, You talk about the API a bit. Like, what do you need to do? Uh, Well, the first thing you need to do is download Stream Insight and install it. Um, From there, um, the API, when you first get to it, it's not like a lot of your traditional Microsoft server products where you, you know, just go in and start clicking stuff and stuff starts working. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to, you have to sit down in Visual Studio, you have to sit down in C Sharp, um, and you have to start writing some code. The easiest thing to do, um, is to actually go up to the MSDN samples. Um, there is something called a simple stream insight app sample, uh, that I put up on, on MSDN samples that you can download. Uh, and that will walk you through the process of creating the Stream Insight server, um, creating your Stream Insight application, which really just serves as a container, um, and then creating your input adapters, output adapters, and your streams and queries in between. Um, and it goes through and shows you kind of all, all at a high level all the different pieces and components involved with with doing that in stream insight and you can turn the things on and off and kind of see how how it all works well i I gotta think the examples are the key to this whole thing so when we're trying to find a a, you know i'm trying to just figure out how we work out these relationships you know if the pressure on this pipe goes up the pressure on that pipe goes down like what does that code look like is it a link expression i'm look i'm thinking reactive extensions yeah um it would typically be uh, either in a, a link expression or in a um, user-defined function or user-defined streaming operator. Um, the other interesting thing is, and the other thing that you need to figure out is, how do I know which pressures to compare? Right. Right. So we've we've been talking this whole time about you know different sensors and sensor information and this live data that is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. But the reality is when you're doing these types of applications, you also have to have what we call reference data yeah, or a right. slow moving stream. 
Um, and so, but that in stream insight, that works the exact same way as everything else. You bring it in through an input adapter, except instead of it being a point, you bring it in as say an interval that has a long period of time. And then maybe you refresh it every hour. And so you have this, this slow moving stream of reference data that you merge in with your fast moving stream of actual real live data. That reference data says these two sensors should have such and such a relationship. Right. You then have a link expression or, you know, one of your user defined operators evaluate that and then trigger an event or not. Now, when it comes to reactive, um, right now you can use reactive in there, um, but Stream Insight, uh, 1.x, uh, supported framework 3.5. With 2.0, they're supporting framework 4 because they're going to be doing more stuff directly with reactive in the upcoming 2.1 version. Okay. So, so two products go together? Yeah, they do. They do. And, and, the stuff that's coming with 2.1 is going to be very, very interesting with the way they're integrating Reactive. Yeah, it's it seems like it would take a lot of that pressure off you to to get the timing right. Maybe um, maybe I'm maybe I'm not understanding, but that just this seems to be a logical outcome. Well, the timing the timing is really handled by the engine. Right, the the synchronizing the the um, the different streams and the different timelines between the streams that's handled by the engine. What Reactive is going to do is take what has traditionally been probably one of the tougher parts of Stream Insight development and make it very very easy, and that is adapter development. Um, because of the very highly multi-threaded nature, um, it was really really tough or it has been really, really tough to get the adapter lifetime just right um, within that multi-threaded context. Because what will be happening is you'll be off on, you know, one thread, threads, and no events. <clears throat> then you'll have another thread that comes in and tells you that it's time to stop. Somewhere in there, you actually have a separate thread, and I don't know why they did this, but on a separate thread, the adapter state is changed. So you stop may actually be called before your adapter state is changed to stopping. Hmm. Yep. Classic synchronization problem. I've never actually seen that happen in the wild, but in digging through it in reflector, it's it's possible. Well, of course. I mean that's so, yeah. that's the classic sync lock problem, right? You mm -hmm. it could it, it might be a one in a million, but it will happen eventually. Yeah. yeah, and it leads to Heisenbugs. Yeah, Heisenbugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, we've had several of those. Um, but the, the integration of the reactive re extensions is going to take all those problems away from you. Um, you're yeah. not going to have to do it. Now, uh, on my team, we've worked with these quite a bit. We've got the issue nailed. Um, we can do it, and we have base classes that wrap all this up, and we can do it reliably, time in, time out, every single time. But it took us several months, probably eight or nine months, to get to that point. Hmm. With a lot of cursing and <laughs> shouting and throwing of things in between. Well, how do you create sort of a repeatable process here, right? Um, the way we did it, you know, we used base classes that really allowed us to break apart on my data acquisition from the actual enqueuing of the data into the stream inside engine. And so because we were able to do that, we were, we were able to manage the lifetime of the adapter completely independently of the data acquisition and ensure that we did not have any of those issues. So we, you know, there's no problem that can't be solved without another layer layer of abstraction. Right. And that's exactly what we did. We just put another <laughs> layer of abstraction on it, called it a day. It just <laughs> took a while to figure out how that layer of abstraction should look. Right. 
Mm. Yeah, you don't want to make things worse anyway. Right, right. Because if you don't get your lifetime of your adapters correct, you'll see one of two things. Either A, Stream Insight will hang on shutdown. Um, it will eventually die, but it will hang because you haven't told Stream Insight that your adapter stopped. Right. Or you will get an object disposed exception. You will get one of the other, one or the other. Now, how often are you going to shut down Stream Insight? Is this something that should be running all the time? Typically, yes, it will be running all the time. But when you're doing development, it's not going to be running all the time, right? Okay. Yeah. Because you're going to, you're going to start it up. Start up your adapters, start up your queries, and then shut it down, make whatever changes you need, go through it again and again and again. Um, and so that's when you, you pick it up. Uh, but yeah, typically in the real world, you're going to leave it up and you're going to leave it running all the time. Hmm. And does this distribute across multiple machines fairly well? Like what happens when you, you know, get to a point where there's too much stuff coming in? You probably saturate your network before that happened. But, right. um, no, there, there currently is no scale out, um, solution for Stream Insight. Right. Uh, they are working on Stream Insight in the cloud. Uh, it's called Project Austin, mm-hmm. uh, which would be Stream Insight running in Azure. Um, but then what I would do is, and that's situation, say on premise, um, I would start looking at splitting them apart. Um, and, and having what we call a, uh, a hub and spoke stream inside architecture. Right. Where you have. You, you're probably going to end up with some kind of .NET device that's doing the initial data gather to create the, the stream set anyway, right? So there's probably a few machines involved anyway. Mm, not necessarily. You know, I don't, I mean, I don't the rig with a lot of our customers, for example, they use OSI soft Pi. Right. And they'll have a single Pi server. And we'll attach to that Pi server because OSI has input adapters for Stream Insight. And so there, there'll be two machines. And typically that will handle the load. Nice. I mean, when you're talking about 100,000 events per second and the, the server's, you know, barely breathing, you know, on, on my, uh, on my little laptop, I have a little dual core laptop. We push 40,000 events per second through it pretty regularly. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky winner of the the Dotnet Rocks fan club. Awesome. Today's winner is AJ Murray, and he wins the Telerik AJ. Ultimate Collection. Golf clap for you, sir. That's uh, $2,000 worth of Telerik software. It's actually $7,000 worth of Telerik software. They sell it for two grand. We're giving it to AJ free just for being cool. Uh, <laughs> because AJ signed up for the .NET Rocks fan club, his uh, name was chosen at random, you can sign up to every show we give something away. Uh, go to com. click on the big Get Free Stuff button in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, you too can win. And every year we're giving away five grand worth of technology handpicked by Richard and myself. All right. Uh, just before the break there, uh, Jay, you mentioned uh, OSI and the, the Pi. Is that Pi Core Insight? Um, Core Insight is a part of Pi System. Okay. Um, but OSI Soft Pi, um, the the core of it is what's called Historian, uh, and it's really designed to take this sensor information and write it out in a very efficient and compressed manner. Right. Um, so it does some really cool stuff. Um, and in fact, the big thing that it does with Stream Insight doesn't do without adapters is actually store it. Ah, well, I think isn't that the whole point with this is rather than because if you if you didn't if you wanted to store this you'd just be using an OLAP cube, mm-hmm. right? So the, the whole point right. here is not storing this, allowing it to flow through and doing analysis in real time on it. Correct, and then storing what you need. Right. How how often do you hear? I have a bunch of already recorded data. How do I run that through Stream Insight? Uh, actually, we, we hear that quite a bit. Typically, it's, it's done in testing algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, we have recorded data of, you know, device A blew up. We yeah. want to create and test an algorithm that would tell us 
that device A was going to blow up right. before it blew up. Exactly. Right. Well, that right. sort of backs me into another question that's been burning my mind, which is how do you figure out all these relationships in the first place? Uh, a lot of times it is working with, uh, you know, in, in the case of, you know, devices, the engineers who actually understand these things. Hmm. Right. Right. Um, looking at the manufacturer specs, you know, the, the people who actually understand these things, and then the developers develop the algorithms in conjunction with them. And then you take the existing data sets and run it through to test your algorithm. But if we get back to, you know, if we're talking about the refinery model, anytime you have a quote-unquote event in a refinery, that data becomes incredibly valuable for understanding that event and ultimately probably leads to new algorithms. Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> and so you would create new queries, and you can, you can actually do this at runtime. You can load up a new query and attach a new query at runtime um, using the management service API. Mm-hmm. It also leads into another another interesting thing um, that we've we've actually seen quite a bit of interest in. Going back to you know OSI Pi, um, you know really excellent historian. I don't want to make I want to make sure y'all, y'all don't understand that I'm knocking these guys because we work with them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But part of what they do when they store information is they compress it, they downsample it, so it doesn't actually store every value that comes in. Right. Because when everything's going right, you don't want to. I mean, you're talking, yeah. I mean, they pull terabytes a day off the offshore platforms in the Gulf of Mexico as it is. Right. Okay. So it's, it's just too much data. But when something goes wrong, you actually do want to store every single value. Sure. So with Stream Insight, we can analyze every individual value that's coming in, everything we see off that sensor. Um, and then when we detect an event, we can actually selectively turn that high speed stream on to write out every single value into whatever storage that you want. And we can actually buffer, say, the previous 20 or 30 minutes so that you have a 20 or 30 minute buffer before the event got triggered to really go in and start doing root cause analysis. Right. Cause and that, you, you, you can't just keep everything. That's, that's gigabytes of data a day. So to actually only keep when something anomalous happens, have clear right. instrumentation around that, I think is the most interesting thing. Yeah. Now you have to keep some level of, of data, you know, for everything every day, but you're right. Yep. I mean, typically you don't want to keep it all except when something goes wrong. Right. And then you're very, very interested in that. Literally um, so the second want- by second. So does Stream Insight handle that for you? The sort of store everything all the time, but delete it on the go. Um, again, that would be that would be something that you do in your queries. Yeah. Okay. So you would have your alarm query, and then based on detected alarms, you have your high speed data query. They get come. They join together, and based on that join can either turn on or turn off the output of that high-speed stream. It's a neat little trick. Yeah. And wait, are you storing all this in SQL Server? Um, well, the output adapters are just like input adapters. You can store it wherever you want. Right. So you can store it in SQL Server. You can store it in other lesser database systems, which shall not be named. <laughs> Did you say lesser? Uh, <laughs> or um you know you can also uh store it in in OSI Pi cuz uh, right. the the OSI folks have output adapters as well so you can write to existing pi tags just write it back i mean in the end it could just be a text file right all you want is the record right you, yeah you can write it to csv if you want if that makes you happy uh, csv is ugly surfing the web Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. 
No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Is there actually a dependency between Stream Insight and SQL Server? You have to have a SQL Server license. Oh. But does it actually have to use SQL Server? Right. No, it does not have to use the SQL Server database engine. So like, like I said, like I said earlier, it's this little teeny tiny install on your SQL Server DVD. Right? Little teeny tiny. Right. That's the only thing you need to install. Um, you actually won't see the install for Stream Insight if you go full, go through the full SQL Server install. It's it doesn't even show up separately. Huh? It doesn't even show up. It's completely installed separately. Right. Doesn't even show up. And is there any relationship between what you're producing in Stream Insight and the analysis services in SQL Server? Would you use them together? Uh, yes, you could ab- absolutely use them together. Again, you would output into SQL Server and then mm-hmm. do your post-event analysis afterwards. Um, right. That's that's an important thing. Stream Insight doesn't replace the existing analytics that you're doing. Right. So post-event analytics. You know, your weekly reports, that kind of stuff. You're not going to want to use Stream Insight mm. to do that. It's not going to do so well with that. It's really, well, it doesn't strike me that Stream Insight has anything to do with data mining. No, it's, it's, no. seems to me it's just the, the, the plumbing of getting data in and out. Getting data in and out and analyzing that data on the way through. Well, you're right. letting you analyze it. Yeah. Right. Um, that's that's also one of the differences that uh, sometimes I've I've seen folks struggle to understand on the forum, and honestly, I kind of struggled with in the beginning. As developers, when we're used to working with data, we're used to I'm going to make a request, I'm going to issue a query, I get a response, and it's done. Right? Mm. We yeah. do this all the time. Stream Insight doesn't work that way. You know, I'm I'm. I'm a recording guy, so I'm always interested in recording data and then looking at it and seeing how I can utilize that. I wonder if there's some way or software we could write that you hook your sensors up and then you cause a fault and all that data is being recorded, let's say, in SQL Server. And then I want to go back and look at that data, analyze it, and see what I need to check in order to determine that that fault is about to happen so I can activate another relay to shut off the whatever it is. Like, does that sound like something? That sounds like the first thing I would want to do. Well, what you would do is you would actually analyze the data on its way to SQL Server before it actually gets stored. Because what happens, the, the data is pushed in through your input adapter, and it's a push all the way through. Mm-hmm. So you start your query, your query is always running. Right? You don't execute the query, the query executes itself so I guess... on the data as it's, as it's coming through. So what you would do is, as, it's, as that data is coming through from, from the recording or wherever, uh, you would be doing the analytics there before it actually gets written to disk. And how would I be doing the analytics? Would I be looking at a graph or a chart, or would I actually be able to write that somewhere where I can go look at it and see, ah, this is what happened. You know, this sensor went to 30, this one went to 10, and that, that indicates that this is about to blow up, which happened right here. So therefore we have, you know, 3.2 seconds before this event happens after these two events happen. You know, where am I looking at that? Um, again, that would be as, as a function of the output adapter. So uh-huh. you can output that then to SQL Server. Um, we've also been, built output adapters for um, uh, WPF and Silverlight. Interesting. We, we, we can actually push these down to rich UI controls. So I could just sort of do my own capture and recording and visualization stuff if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you can, if you can do it in .NET code, right? Yeah, you can, you can do it here. 
Now, I was trying to get at the data mining angle just because you get back to, uh, you don't automatically know what all the relationships is between everything else. Like to me, it'd be very interesting during an event that you have all that data and it gets dumped to a cube after the event. And then you do data mining to show relationships you may not have realized. Yeah, or even run it through a neural network. Now, that's right. what data mining is about, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just show you know that it, it would naturally bubble up. Here are the as this change that change those kinds of relationships which sort of can be computationally found. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we have done um, with a large oil and gas company based in Houston really narrows it down a lot, right? Yeah. Yep. Is on the the streaming data. Uh, that was coming in from the sensors. Um, every two seconds, we would actually call into a predictive analytics engine that would do that exact type of process. It was designed to do that data mining, here's something that happens, do some sort of neural net, um, whatever voodoo magic that they do, and come up with ways to see that event again. Um, and we actually did a very successful proof of concept with a large oil and gas company here um, that did that and did it in real time. And so it leveraged this predictive analytics engine in a way that uh, they had never been able to leverage it before. Because traditionally, it's been a create the predictive algorithm. Okay, I get yesterday's data. I'm going to run yesterday's data through my algorithm. And then tomorrow, I know. Well, now you know within a couple seconds, right? That's that, mm. that's pretty pretty cool stuff. Yeah, very yeah, cool, powerful. So, and again, that goes back to you know, it's .NET code. We can extend it with .NET code. So, if we can call this analytics engine on the fly from .NET code, we can rock and roll. We can, yeah. I got no more questions. This is awesome. Yeah, it. it you know what? It almost reminds me of in a way of biz talk. In the sense that it doesn't do anything per se, it just facilitates all the things you need to do in a in a really good way. Yeah, it's plumbing. Yeah, yeah, smart plumbing, smart plumbing. Yeah, yeah, I I, I would I would agree with that statement. Um, I would definitely yeah, I would agree with that statement. But uh, they're very different in that biz talk. From my perspective, is very low volume, high latency. Right. Sure. Right. Uh, you know, since working on this, my idea of latency and volume has really changed. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. There's bit faster than there's holy. One of the uh, one of the things that we looked at, we were talking with Stephen Taub, and so I went looking for the fastest or the biggest server number of processors that I could build just on the hardware that's on Newegg, and for forty four hundred bucks, I could get a a quad core motherboard, uh, I'm sorry, a, a quad CPU motherboard. Each CPU is an AMD that has 16 cores and it supports 256 gigs of RAM on this motherboard. So now that's just for the processors and the motherboard. But then you've got 64 cores. Nice. It's a lot of <laughs> horsepower. For, for four 40, grand. For $4,400. Now you haven't got the RAM and you haven't got the rest of it, but still, there you go. Yeah, the processors were about nine hundred, and motherboard was about nine hundred too. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. Well, yeah, and I used to think that a dual processor machine was hot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you guys remember those days too. Yeah, we we brought up the math coprocessor. Remember that. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. I actually still have, I have a, a, in one of my boxes in my office, I have a, a 387 math coprocessor. Yeah. Wow. I'm not going to get rid of it just because, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, wow. Yeah. It's just kind of cool to have. Yeah. I think I still have a, a Windows 95 beta CD somewhere. I still have my, uh, 
DOS 5 and Windows 3.1 installation right. disk. Well, I still have my TRS DOS discs. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I think we're done. <laughs> we're going to a dark place now. <laughs> Man, Richard still has his Commodore 64, so. Does it work? No, I kept the TRS-80 Model 1 alive until the middle 90s, and we were literally resoldering some of the traces with wire because they were falling off the board. Wow. Had to put it in a bigger chassis, and I had a girlfriend at the time wander by and say, looked in the box and said, wow, it looked like R2-D2 threw up in here. (laughs) (laughs) But I know what? I bet you could go on eBay and buy one. Probably could. I don't know. They they're so they've been haven't been made for so long. I think it's they, they there may be none left. They're just in museums. I'm gonna have to boot up that thing and see if it'll actually read the disc after all these years. I'm betting no. The model four. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah not. probably not. Yeah. Well, Jay, it's been a pleasure talking to you. This is great stuff. It's been good talking to you guys too. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 